welcome to Top of Mind, the show where we talk to real estate industry insiders and experts about the biggest trends impacting the market today. Enjoy the show. Mike Simonson here. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast. This is where I talk to the smartest leaders, thinkers, and doers in the real estate industry. For a couple of years now, we've been sharing the latest Altos research market data every week in our weekly YouTube video series. With the new Top of Mind podcast, we're looking to add some context to the data. So it context to the discussion about what's happening in the market from, from the leaders in the industry. Each week, Altos Research tracks every home for sale in the country, all the pricing, all the supply and demand, and we do all the analytics on the, on the changes in that data, and we make it available to you before you see it in the traditional channels. So visit altosresearch.com for free consultation on how you can use market data in your business. So without further ado, let me introduce my guest today, Joe Curtis. Joe is the Chief Operating Officer of the real estate escrow and settlement services provider, Pang, provider Pango Group, based in Southern California, SCOO of Pango. Joe helps the achieve the company mission, running an exceptional real estate services business by being driven, by being a driving force, in keeping Pango ahead of the curve at the forefront of the evolving technologies in the settlement industry. We're going to talk about a lot of the technologies and where the, the industry is going today. In 2019, uh, Real Estate Magazine named Joe one of its top 100 people in real estate. So welcome, Joe. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Mike. Excited to be here. All right. Well, you know, we've known each other for a long time. We've uh, done business together and Pango. But for our listeners who don't know Pango Group, why don't you give them a quick overview on the company and then also what are settlement services? And in California, they're escrow sure. services. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Pango and, and, the, and the specific slice of the industry that we get to learn about today? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you the, the 30 second kind of elevator pitch. So the Pango Group is a real estate settlement services company based out of Southern California. And our primary business is running and operating escrow companies. So we're on the settlement side of the title and escrow kind of like business. We have a couple of other ancillary real estate services businesses, like a notary company, and we do some document archiving and stuff like that. But our, our core business is really being that neutral third party in escrow and, and providing the settlement portion of the title. And so that's important to, to note because title and escrow aren't done the same kind of nationwide. And so... The, you know, the, in the title world, you have the insurance part of title, which is ensuring the chain of title and making sure that the, the transfer of property happens well. And then the settlement side is really the, you know, you have closers or escrow officers or closing agents and lots of, of and they're handling and balancing the file and making sure that everything is kind of like done properly, making sure that the things are transferred. And then they're having that signing the buyer. Uh, or the seller, depending on the market that you're in, and, and really providing for that kind of like customer facing experience. And so that would be kind of like the settlement side, right? And then we settle and we disperse all the funds after the, the property closes. So Got it. those are kind of give you the, the two sides, you have the insurance side of the business, and then you have the closing and settlement side. Of the and you guys have focused on this closing and settlement side of the business. California is, you do business all over California? All over California. Yep. And, and that's different. It's always fascinating to me how the the transaction customs are different all oh, over yeah. the country. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and you know why that is? Like how we ended up this way? You know, I think that that real estate being, I mean, we we could ask why there are so many MLSs. I think that real estate, especially, has been done kind of locally forever. And the title insurance business is based on like recording documents at a county level courthouse. And so I think that that's probably a lot of the history of it. And so in each, you know, county, they're going to have, I mean, in, in Louisiana, they call them parishes, right? So you're going to have different customs that are going to be related to that, that state's regulated, regulated body. And then you're going to have some regional differences. And so I think that's where, you know, you look at lenders, lenders have like a national, like federal regulation, whereas title and escrow are really regulated on the state level. And I think that's where you get a lot of the nuances. 
Oh, I got it. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's 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 just amazing how different the expectations oh. are and the transaction processes are. But but so the the fun thing about today is I'm gonna I'm interested in learning about how that is changing. And there's some real, you know, there's some real big technological forces on the horizon. So I'm interested yeah. in talking about some of those today and uh, and seeing what we can come up with. Let's start here, though. We call the podcast Top of Mind. It's now in, end of February when we're recording this. Well, it'll it'll be available in March when we share it. But the market's been on fire. What is what's <laughs> top of mind for you right now? Yeah. So the market has been on fire. It's insane. I was actually looking at, so Altos has these great like regional or county-based reports. And so I look at those kind of, they're, they're a little bit more macro level than the zip code specific. And I was looking at the San Diego market and the market action index is like 97. It's the highest I've ever seen it. Like neutral is 30 and like that's a 97. Um, so obviously like everybody's talking about what's happening in the market where that relates to me as like a chief operating officer is I'm looking at the job market and I'm saying like, how do we really, that's really top of mind for me right now is like finding quality people. I think you can, you can look at across sectors and segments around this, but that's really one of the things that's top of mind for me. And, and, the interesting thing is, is the nature of how we work has completely changed over the past two years because of the pandemic COVID. And, you know, there was a time when people had the thought that, hey, you have to have like a local closing office, right? Because people are coming in there and that's what's really, really important. And we had, Ed, you know, we went through probably eight or nine months where we didn't have a client in our entire office like at any office, in any office that we had, right? And so people were like signing at car, like in the parking lot or all of a sudden digital signings came around. So it's really around like, hey, how do we staff? So like not only finding people, but how do we kind of fit them into this new kind of way that we're working? Whereas, you know, it's less important to have like somebody come in and sit in a conference room and have a bottle of water, a cup of coffee, and sign their loan docs. It's it's just it's changing the way that we work a little bit, and that comes into a lot of the technology that enables that, and it also just comes into kind of like the habits that we thought were important beforehand, and now what we think count. So That's, yeah, so big changes in the last couple of years. But before we talk about the technology and some of those, tell me about your team. So because top of mind is like, who do we put in this industry? Tell me about what's the team look like, and 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 where are you going from here. Well, so team is, we have a, I think we have one of the best teams in the business at Pango Group. And so that that is going to go at a couple of different levels. And of course, I have to say that, but I, I actually really believe that, taking a, taking a look at the landscape. And so, you know, you have your core kind of service providers are going to be your escrow officers. Like your escrow officers are there. They're really managing like a volume of transaction that we haven't seen in ever, or at least in the in the last 15 to 20 years that I've been in the business. So you have this, this really like that customer interaction, you know, we have about 55 escrow officer units kind of spread out throughout Southern California and we do business all over the state. And then we have our, our, and the support team is really the leadership team. And I think like support and leadership kind of go hand in hand. And that team is really designed to say, Hey, how do we support and make sure that this customer right experience is good so that we are making raving fans out of all of the the people that interact with us whether it be you know the buyer and the seller who are paying our fees whether it be the real estate agents who are referring us business whether it be like the FedEx guy that comes into the office every day kind of wearing a mask and and so he walks in and says hey there's something different about this place and so our team is structured through kind of like a regional management kind of structure and we've spent a lot of time in the last two years really investing in kind of like leadership because the way that we communicate today is different than the way that we communicated two years ago. And we're having to kind of rewire our brains a little bit in terms of like you get these old pathways of saying like, hey, here's how we communicate as a team to make sure that we're getting a great experience. And then all of these changes happen and you kind of have to rewire the way that you think about even communicating internally right? With all kinds of new tools, like what we're doing right now through podcasts and like getting out great content and information that's valuable to people that can kind of take action on it. Or how are you like reducing the? I mean, I used to get a good example is like, I used to get probably 200, 220 emails a day, right? Like that's some people were like, yeah, that's nothing. I get a thousand. Like some people are like, what? Right. 
Well, we switched to Teams, which is kind of like the Microsoft version of Slack, and my emails per day went down to probably 50 or 60 because of all of this internal communication that we're having to now manage on these different platforms, some of it has been really, really good and kind of stretches your thinking and some of it's like, hey, whoa, I got another thing that I got <laughs> to kind of relearn. And But what's good about all of it, and you asked about the team is, I think the most important thing today for us is for our ability to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Meaning, like we gotta be learning, we gotta be saying like, hey, if I'm not like continually getting uncomfortable just a little bit, that means I'm, we're not really pushing ourselves as hard as we could to make sure that we're doing the best job for our people and the people that are paying our bills. So that's there's a lot to unpack there. There's um, some really good trends. So the changes, and we've been talking about, there's technological changes in the, in the process, but it's interesting that one of the, the first technological changes you're feeling is just moving to Microsoft Teams, like just shifting from yeah. email to the, does that, so I know during the pandemic, we already had Slack, we already did most of our communication via Slack, and and yep. the reason that those work is because there's a lot of overhead in email, every email sent that gets eliminated and, and streamlined out. That makes a ton of sense to me. In my in our company, we have a global team and we started doing more Zoom calls. We're actually more connected now post-COVID yeah. than we were ever in a in in the the pre-COVID world. And so does awesome. and, and does that in your case, is that translating into improved product or service in some way for customers? Okay, so this is a great, great question. Okay, so I thought about this a lot. And and you have to understand, I think one of the things that if you take a look at our industry, our industry is like a hundred and somebody somebody at First American Fidelity is going to get me like say, no, it's actually this specific date when the title insurance industry started. But let's call it like a hundred plus years. I was going to say like 120, but let's call it a hundred plus years old, right? Historically, we've been a little bit behind other industries in terms of the technology that we've adopted. No, I don't, I don't think anybody would get <laughs> incredibly upset about me saying that. I just think that that's been my observation, which is why it's been easy to kind of implement some of the changes that, that we have. And so you asked a question about like, hey, does it, how does the, these changes impact the quality of the service? Like, does it actually really help, right? And I think that, so the only like evidence that I have is when we ask customers, like, how did we do? We just closed a transaction with you. How did we do? Right. Yeah. And so what does that look like? And I can tell you that, you know, we work on a five star system, just like many other people. So it's really relatable and understandable to kind of see. And I can tell you that our overall company scores in 2020 was like lower than it is today. Right. So we were doing less business in 2020 than we did in 2021. We, just did, we did less business. The market grew. It was crazy. And like, there's lots of reasons for, for why that is. But if I look at our customer service scores and we survey buyers, sellers, selling agents, buying agents, right? So all four constituents. And if you look at the scores across the board, over that period of time, when we did more business, we're like more stressed, like crazier, our customer service scores went up. And so if if that's the case, either consumers' expectations just dropped, which I don't think that's it, or part of the technology that you're using and the processes that we worked out, we're actually connecting with people on a level that was was at the end of the transaction. They said, "Hey, I think that that what you gave us was a was a great service." That's so, so that's really terrific, and and is I like to think that there are some of the technological changes that were forced upon us during the pandemic mm -hmm. that will stay because it's actually a better world. People are yeah. more competent with Zoom and that's a yeah. really effective thing. It's good for the for our world. So so awesome. So that's a great way to measure it. The service scores are up. So let's talk about customer facing technology. You mentioned digital yeah. signings. I refinanced yes. during the pandemic and yeah. I didn't go to an office, but somebody came to my kitchen and yeah. it's still a stack of papers. This 500 year. pages. Yep. You need ink on it. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's talk about digital signings and um, when does it happen? What's holding it up? And and are there implications for better service for the consumer or better 
pricing or more transactions or what what are the implications that we see once we finally move into a digital signings world yeah so so let's talk about first just what digital signing like actually means yes. right and so like if you have the ability and and everybody is really familiar with DocuSign, right so hey i got something i DocuSigned it like that's kind of like par for the course. Like if you bought a piece of real estate, more than likely you DocuSigned your contract to send it over, right? And so that's normal. Like that's what, what, is, what is different that I think is going to kind of transform the customer's experience is this whole remote online notarization, which is what, if we're talking about digital signings in the settlement world, and there's lots of different like variable terms. There's, you know, right. But let's talk about RON or remote online notarization. It's where we're notarizing documents that need a person, historically need a person sitting in front of you, verifying that you're that person. You get the little thumb print and you put it on and they take out your driver's license and write it down and you write your name in a book, right? That process, right? Which, which is the thing that required people coming into your office so that you can meet the notary there or like we have notaries and then we sign you up. Like that process, when that goes digital, when you and I can be on a camera like this and I show you my driver's license on the camera and you verify my identity, right? And then we can do that signing digitally, right? Which is happening other places, not in California because a whole host of reasons that we don't need to get into here. But the, the, when that happens and people start having that and that experience where I can sit in my pajamas and like sign the loan documents from my house and I'm talking to somebody that's articulate and can answer my questions while we're going through that. And it, it'll still take some time to like, cause you have questions when you're going through your loan documents and you're looking at the term and you're like, is this right? And I want to make sure all that that's good. When that happens, that's transformative. When that gets to scale, like, that is a really meaningful, like once you do that, I don't think that you'd ever go back like, why would I ever go and drive my car and sit in a conference room and wait for somebody to come in and like do the whole signing thing? Like that experience from a customer standpoint, I think is going to be really transformative. Now, you asked like, what's holding that up? A ton of stuff, <laughs> right? I think that you have like, so, so again, regulated by the state. Right. So California hasn't gotten on board with remote online notaries. So there's two things. You have regulators and then you have lenders. Right. Because lenders in states. So you have to notarize the grant deed. Right. The piece of property that saying, hey, this is the transfer. And then you have like your loan documents. And so you have lenders that are requiring right now actual ink on paper. Like they don't even let you scan it and send it to them, even the ones you got in that come paper, because that's essentially a digital signature. It's just like a live digital signature that you've digitized and then sent. Some are, some aren't, but it's when lenders are saying like, yes, we will use this as the final verification and done. I think that's when the, those are the two things that I think are holding up remote online notary and mass. So, so state level regulation yep. and, and then lenders tend to be, national level correct um, are they also is it also with the the mortgage markets on the back end do they is that is are they involved in this transition or they just get if the lender is underwritten the loan like this does fannie may say i want wet signatures on these 18 pieces of paper yeah so that's a great question mike like i don't know if i'm in a position to to kind of like be able to articulate kind of what happens on the back end of like the secondary mortgage market and like the compliance, but there's always a compliance component, right? So like I'm in a compliance heavy and heavily regulated business, so are lenders. And so there's oftentimes lots of hoops that you have to jump through. And then it's all a matter of risk. So like what risk am I willing to take, right? To be able to do something that's new that a regulator might see as old, right? Like, I don't know. So I think that you are going to have smaller lenders adopt this a lot more quickly than you have the Wells Fargo's of the world, right? Now, somebody at Wells Fargo made, no, no, we have a whole department for that. And like, we're working on that. And that's true. Like, but the, the in mass, like I'm talking about, like when you and I, when we refinance our house or we buy a house, like that's the norm versus the exception. Right now, it's a great exception. And do you, and do you foresee a world or... Maybe how far out is the world where you know, like an entirely online transaction? So I think that and there's a difference between- let's talk about California between, specifically. Like, yeah, you know, I was going to say, I think there's a difference between entirely online transaction 
and a humanless transaction. Oh, okay, yeah, for sure. Right. So I think an entirely online transaction, like outside of notarizing the grant deed and like like the notarizing in California, notarizing your you know note and deed of trust as required by the as it were cried by the lender, like we're there, like we're 97%, like you can do most of the things digitally and transact digitally, right? In a, in a settlement. And those are kind of like the two friction points. And there's, so there's going to be some friction points in the transaction, but yeah, you can, I, that's, that is a possibility right now in other states. I think that you can do it completely digitally, right? Where you have, and you can do a remote online notarization if you get a lender that can approve, especially if it's like an all cash deal and you don't have a lender in it. You can do it completely digitally. Right, 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 right. Right. And so, um, so then, but, but the fact is, so that you can do it, but the fact is like, I still signed 200 pieces of paper in my kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you got to remember, like a lot, you got to remember what all those are. Those are a lot of CYA documents <laughs> for lenders. It's like, like, Hey, you acknowledge X, Y, and Z. And Z. I mean, I don't think that we can take, I don't think that we can take loan doc. Maybe you could. But it's all about risk and having people acknowledge that there is risk in taking out a loan, right? Um, Now, will it get to the point where you're like signing your iPhone, iOS update, like user agreement? That's the same, probably the same number of pages, but you're just like saying, yes, I I agree, right? Like it's easy to do that with an iPhone and your user agreement because like the stakes aren't a million dollar house or a $700,000 or $400,000 mortgage, right? So- uh, there's this balance of what we call speed and security, right? Like fast and secure sometimes have like an inverse relationship. For sure. And so, and so, so I think that it's just really finding that proper balance of fast and secure, right? Because consumers are going to want fast, 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 fast. People that provide insurance want secure, 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 or loans, right? And so, how do you balance those two things? where you get a great customer experience and and provide the security and like the ability for companies that absolutely need to cover the risk, cover the risk. And is, is Pango in a in a position to provide some leadership on that for, for both those constituents? Well, I re- we got lots of ideas. <laughs> <laughs> great. We, have, we always have lots of ideas. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think like an area that you could, that we're, again, California, I'm not sure why we're unable to do this in really any meaningful way, but like one place that you could get something that's really secure, that a lot of people are talking about and companies are doing right now is like an earnest money deposit. Like an earnest money deposit is lower stakes, right? Than a payoff or a, just because it's 3% of the transaction typically. And so if you could, if you could really make a earnest money deposit and there are companies that do this today. So like, it's not, it's just not widespread in California. So I'd, this is the context of which we're talking about. But that's an easy kind of like thing where you can really vet out, hey, what are the stakes? What are the risks? And can we go to this speed, right? Instead of like, seriously, like you got to go down to your bank and like fill out this, I fill out a form, right? Like an actual paper form, right? And sign it to do a wire. Yeah. Like yeah. That's, that's my experience today, right? Whereas like, hey, it's $15,000. I mean, I can transfer it in between my accounts. Like I want to be able to provide some type of Venmo experience for a buyer on their phone to be able to say, hey, it's secure and it's fast and they're lower stakes. Yeah. I think those are kind of areas that we could, you know, implore the regulators to, to allow more seamless or more creativity around that. And there's and some really cool. More quickly. Yeah. And there's some really cool in, in, integrations that people are, are currently doing in the space. Like Payments, I think, is a company, Endpoint's doing this right now. There's a couple of companies in Seattle that have done it that are just integrating with like, you know, Plaid and Adwala and stuff like that. So neat. All right. It's well, cool. That's super cool. So the other big looming technology in the, in the, the transaction space is, as we've had a lot of media coverage, a lot of speculation in blockchain and but obviously like not a lot of adoption there's a couple of companies that are that are doing some work there do you have thoughts on blockchain and 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 in specifically the the settlement world that you live in every day and it's okay to be skeptical i i yes i I, treat me as a a total novice in the space because 
I don't really know anything about the nuances. Like I've, I've bought three houses in my life. Like that's what I yeah. know. In that sense. Yeah. 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 Yes. And, and so this is evolving. I think blockchain technology is amazing. The underlying technology behind cryptocurrency and NFTs, the underlying like decentralized ledger in terms of like a, a one system of record that can is immutable uh, is super powerful, like really, really, really amazing, has the ability to be transformative. I think where, so then, so, so then you're like, okay, how do we apply this to our business, right? And I think that there's two kind of like fundamental ways that people uh, are talking about it. The first is like, how do I tokenize property so that I can own fractional or some type of like tokenization of assets, right? And so they were talking about tokenization earlier. Now they're talking about NFTs and how do you do that? And there's a lot of like legal hoops that you got to jump through. I know like Proppy is a company that's a leader in this space that's doing a lot of a lot of cool creative work around this and really trying to get into the transaction understanding and 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 doing that. So we've worked with them a little bit. You know, we've taken as a company, you know, been able to enable transactions using cryptocurrency. You know, it's basically a crypto to cash transaction. So we've done several of these transactions over the last couple of years. They, we were one of the first in California to kind of complete a couple where people, buyers were buying a house with Bitcoin, uh, but we were converting it to US cash. And so let me I think stop that you there. The, me, before we yeah. go on, like that's really interesting. So were they were they essentially cashing out Bitcoin and turning it into yes. down payment? Yes, down payment and or payoff. And or payoff, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is there anything that this, there's a question that's, that's a, a pretty common question in the past year, although it's starting to fade a little bit now as, as the crypto markets have, have come down, but, but there's a lot of wealth generated since the beginning, since two years ago in crypto. Yeah. And so yeah. are there, are there anything that um, consumers need to know about that? Or like, is there anything that's, that have popped up as difficult or unusual in that space, like that's gotten away, or you know, anything we should know? Well, there's lots. I mean, we could do a whole podcast on this topic alone, right? Like it's it's a there's a lot to kind of unpack. I think for somebody that has and has created some wealth using the like Bitcoin cryptocurrency, whatever it is, right? I think that the things that you need to think about is it's not US dollars. Like you have Bitcoin, or you have Ethereum, or you have Litecoin, or you have Dogecoin, or you have whatever you, whatever you have. It's like, and, and, and people want to interact and transact as if they have US dollars. That's just not the case. Like, you can have a lot of pesos, but you can't buy a house in pesos, right? It's just, you can't do it. Like, you may be able to get somebody to lend you US dollars based on the pesos that you have, but you can't. So in terms of like a currency, yes, it's more global. Yes, it's decentralized. It's all of those things. But there's still not really a great way, and you will find people that will be able to argue with me on this, to transact, right, using crypto because you have to convert because a lender is not going to take a payoff in Bitcoin. Like if there's, if there's somebody that has a house and there's a like $400,000 loan on it, and you got to clear the lien on that house by giving Bank X $400,000, there's not a lot of banks that are going to say like, yeah, I'll take that in, in cryptocurrency. And when you're doing that, you're doing that outside of a U.S. regulated bank. So it just creates some layers of complexity in the transaction. The other thing you have to know is, my belief is, you have to, like the, the, where the, the cryptocurrency is coming from when you're purchasing a transaction matters to regulatory folks. So there's a lot of hoops to jump through in terms of like KYC, AML, that, that you don't if you just have money in a U.S. bank. KYC is right? know your customer. Meaning know your customer. I know this is not fraudulent, stolen yeah. uh, Bitcoin. And what's, a, what's AML? Uh, Anti-money laundering. Anti-money laundering, okay. Um, yeah, because if you if you got a bunch of like stuff that, that was illegal and you, were con you wanted to convert uh, a bunch of money, right? Like cryptocurrency into U.S. dollars, what better way than to like get into contract in a house and then cancel and like, yeah, now I got all these dollars. Uh huh. So you, they they want to know. So so there's just going to be if you have those assets, you just have to know. Like you have to. There's a lot of verification involved and some hoops to jump through, and it's just different and takes a little bit more time than if you are if you're buying with U.S. dollars. Just right. 
as if like if you had a bunch of pesos. You're going to have to convert. You have to you have to onshore those into U.S. dollars, and there's going to be the same type of scrutiny kind of played to that as well. So it's like so yeah. So then it's order, not a new problem. <laughs> it's, right, right. It's not a new problem. It's just a new technology on the problem. But the the yeah. So that to get to a world where you could buy a home with Bitcoin or name your currency, you would have to have likely have to have the homeowners, the seller's loan is denominated in Bitcoin. You can you can buy a home today with Bitcoin. You, today, you can buy yeah. it today. We'll do the escrow. Okay. Like no, no problem. The catch is you have to convert that Bitcoin into US dollars. It's like there's an exchange yeah. that yeah. has to happen. And there are fees associated with exchanging with Bitcoin yeah. to US dollars, and it can be expensive to convert. Yeah. Right. But if I wanted to, if I wanted to do a transaction in Bitcoin with without that trans without that, it would have to be a world where the 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 sellers had has a uh, mortgage denominated in Bitcoin, and that was a lender who was a federally regulated lender who could lend in Bitcoin because even the, there's like the 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 crypto companies now that are trying to do lending programs yeah. like they, they are the the SEC is like these are securities and you have to be you you got to be a bank it, if you're going to do especially this. if you're lending against it right yeah. yeah so so before we get so like there's a ton of infrastructure yeah that has to happen before that does but today right now the the process is you convert it to, to dollars and then you and there's still a neutral third party. The other part of it is so we're just talking about the transference of money for payoff, right? So that you can do it. The other part is like recording and ensuring a title, right? So there's this whole idea of like having a decentralized ledger. And I think Goldman Sachs came out with a study. I think it was probably in 2017 that says, hey, title in the title industry is going to be one of the place things the blockchain will disrupt, right? And everybody's like, hey, it's, it's forthcoming. I don't think it's forthcoming in the US, but I think like a country like Sweden, right? Or if you get some company in Africa where like land registries are not real organized and you have like one central place that is like controls the land registry, land registry happens county by county by county by county by county by county by county in the entire United States. So like for us to wholesale convert to a decentralized ledger that's one like immutable record or call it, I mean, there's 56 counties in California, 56 different ones, like that is going to take a pretty significant movement in the regulatory kind of like environment to make that happen here. So I think it's going to be slower here. Doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. Uh, I think there's going to be pressures for that to do it because the way that we do it now is kind of funky. But I, I know think the, that the, I, the property team who's been doing, who's really yeah. leading on that in the US, totally. originally from Bulgaria. And, yeah. you know, in Bulgaria, there is a lot more fraud use cases that you have to worry about. And so- totally you could understand why a blockchain would be useful for that. And in the US, totally. there's a significantly lower uh, case of that. And, and so, yeah. then, so then maybe the, the tokenized version of things is, is, is like maybe the, the path forward in the US. Where, yeah, where you hold properties in LLCs and then you tokenize the LLC, not the actual, yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a interesting, there's a lot yet, I think, to be figured out on this topic right so i don't know if we're making any kind of like radical breakthroughs in this but like for for somebody that's just kind of like new to this conversation you know it is it, it is definitely a conversation worth following and continuing to look at it's not irrelevant i think that a lot of people you know would view blockchain crypto all of these things as irrelevant three years ago like nah it's not going to be anything it's fine it's just a fad it's going to go away i don't think that's really the case how it's going to show up in our everyday life and use case in the United States as it relates to real estate, I think that there's a lot yet to be determined. And that's where it's going to be an interesting story to follow. Well, I really appreciate that that lesson on there. Uh, <laughs> that's that's great. So let's let's leave crypto and blockchain there for now. We'll put, you know, we'll put crypto as the headline of our, you know, of our podcast so that we get a gazillion <laughs> listens to it. I just gotta put NFT next yes, to it. Right. Um, <laughs> but no, that's but that's really that's really insightful to me. So but let's switch gears. So you've done some some transactions in you know crypto, but 
what other things are happening in the transaction right now that what are insights that you see that have been happening over the last couple of years, you know, that, that anything in anything that is notable that we should be paying attention to right now? Yes. You gave me, this as like a prep question. And like I, my little monkey brain has like 10 different things and I may narrow them down into something that's like really, really good. I think that there's some market trends and I think that there's some just uh, general kind of like company and in, in things that are happening. So like, Let's just kind of knock them down one at a time. So like market-wise, it's interesting. Like the, the market has been interesting. And so we use Altos research data all the time. I mean, I even write like a, a monthly kind of like recap using like a lot of your regional stuff and kind of overlay it with some of our data, our transaction data that's closing data, because I think we're a statistically significant like kind of like reflection of the Southern California market. Right. And so we, we look at that. And I, one of the things that I would say is, you know, in, in the last year, you know, we had 66% of our non-refi deals, right? So residential resale did not have a loan broker, which means like 34% were cash. That's a significant amount. <laughs> so then you say, okay, well, what, how do you unpack? How do you unpack that? That's higher than it has been right? All cash deals are not that way. And I think that that is a result of a couple of things, right? So you have more investors in the market, you have commoditizing of the single family homes and private equity companies getting into that, that business, which has been making news. You have things like I buying that's happening that uses cash, like, so they are all cash deals that are, that are, I mean, again, they're not, they're, they're like 1.5% of any kind of given market. They're not a significant outside of maybe Phoenix, but like they're not, and Mike Del Preti, does a great job of covering this segment. I'm a big fan of his and, yeah, and Mike's, the research Mike's that he does. Really good. We'll have to have him on the podcast soon. Yeah, he's really, really great. But so, so, so that's a that's a big chunk of the market, right? That's not really, unless they're getting that money to make an all cash deal by borrowing it, right, from some other way, whether it's a fund or something like that. It'll be interesting to see how interest rates play on that. I also looked up hey, what percentage of our deals are bought by LLCs, which is kind of a reflection of investors, right? So yep. what were the, where the buyer was an LLC? Now that, they sometimes transfer afterwards. They sometimes do all this. So this is an exact like one-on-one, but we had, you know, over 7% like of our buyers are showing up as LLCs as buyers. That is also higher than what it's historically been. So there are a couple of just trends that we're looking at that are kind of like outside of like who is buying these houses, what's happening. So all cash deals. And you wonder like once prices start to slow, right? Which I don't think, I think you and I are on the same page in terms of like in 2022, in California, you can, you can look, at, look at globally. I don't think prices are going to take a dramatic hit. You just have an supply and demand issue that is not going to allow that, yeah. right? But once that does happen, and if you assume that most of those cash buyers are investors, all of a sudden, if the equation gets flipped, what happens to that segment of the market? Right? Which I think you could say, like, some of it doesn't exist anymore. Some of what doesn't exist anymore? So I think some of those buyers go away. Got it. In a more some of those buyers go away. When, when money, money gets more expensive right? Prices start to like home prices start to soften so that you can't turn around and sell. Now, it's all going to depend on what the strategy of the investor is, whether a buy and hold and they're renting them out at mass or whether they're fix and flip folks. So it's just, it's about, but it's about a math equation. So it's understanding like what are the, the levers that they have to pull for them to make money on the transaction. And so interest rates play a part of that. Home prices play a part of that. Cost of labor plays a part of that. Like that should be slowing things down. I don't see it happening which is crazy. Yeah. Um, so that's, so I think uh, that's, yeah, so that's great. So, so the 34% cash buyers is mm-hmm. really fascinating to me because mortgage rates have been so low. So why aren't they, why are they paying cash? Is that, are they getting cash I'll tell from you. another source? It's even cheaper financing. What, what, what's. I'll tell you my theory. Yeah. <laughs> now, I don't know. It'd be interesting to kind of, I, I'm trying to figure out how you'd get the data to validate this, but my theory is a couple of things. So one other point of data that you need to know is if you look at close ratio, so how many deals open and then actually close? Because uh-huh. some, some, some deals like fall out. 
And so one of the reasons why our industry did so well in 2021, or at least I'll just speak for the Pango Group, is our closing ratio went up by over 10%. Meaning like on an average year, like in 2020, we closed 71% of the resales that we opened, right? Okay. Normal years between like 73, 74, 75%. So 2020 was a little low. I think we all know why. Yep. Right. 2021 over 78%. So we had to open this, like, think about, so so think about that. Right. So if you're closing 78% instead of 71, you can open, the market can do the exact same thing and you're going to do a ton more revenue because you've now closed a bunch. So why is that? Why are deals not falling out? Right. And so this goes back to the, what we're talking about with cash. I believe, I don't, again, these are, we're, we're, you know, we're talking about like, hey, we have evidence, we have data. And so we draw conclusions on those data. They could be right or wrong, <laughs> right? Because that's how, like, that's what data is, right? It's, yeah. It helps us inform some of the opinions or like beliefs that we have. So I believe that closing ratio is really driven by like, if you get the opportunity to buy a house in California, you're not going to, like the deal's not going to blow up because of the buyer just said, nah, I got a better option. Right? right, like that's not that's not happening today, right? The other thing is, is I think that cash makes it more attractive to sellers. So I think that you're going to see because of the competition in the market, like you're going to see more cash deals. If you can figure out a way to get a cash deal in the mix of the twenty other deals, like you maybe put a little bit higher on the list of acceptance than if you weren't and you were going through traditional financing and had to do the 17-day financial contingency and all of the things that you're doing. So I think that that plays, I think the competition in the market, the low inventory, like with the demand, like equal those two things. And I think that like deals aren't falling out because once you get the place finally after the three years of looking and getting out bid 870 times and you make it happen, right? And if you can put yourself in a position to be all cash, whether you're using one of these companies that will help you facilitate that all cash, and there's a lot of programs that are doing that, like you do, because if you can be more competitive, you will be. I think those are those are things. Again, I'm, I'm looking at information that I'm getting from the market. I'm saying, okay, I think that this makes sense. I think that there's a correlation here. I'm not sure if it's all causal, but like I think that there's a correlation between those things, which is really driving up the cash buyers. I buy that. I, 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 that makes a lot of sense to me. Cash offers not because I have more cash or because the loan is a bad yeah. deal, but just because it helps me get the deal done. And then maybe I do the financing later. I do. Well, that's what, I mean, that's what would be a really interesting thing to figure out. And I don't, I don't know how you'd get like to validate that data. It's like, Hey, how many all cash deals that closed in the last month got refinanced in the next 90 days? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Like that would be an interesting, like I would be super interested in seeing like that kind of conversion, but like we could geek out on the data all day long. For sure, for sure. <laughs> One other data point that I'm interested, you may not have this off the top of your head, but maybe you do, is that the time to close from offer yeah. to close. Did that come yeah. for us? Not dramatically. So we looked at that. We looked at, yeah, we looked at that as well. And it hovered, it didn't even, even during like the pandemic, like we were still looking in like the high 30s. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and so like the on, on average that when you get an accepted offer where you open escrow and then you close that deal. And I don't have the exact number like today over the trailing 12 months, but I've looked at this number several times over the last two years. And it really hasn't fallen much out of, you know, between 34 and like 39 days. Okay. Like that, that is kind of the area. You get outliers. You obviously get outliers. It's a contract piece. Some people say, I want a 45-day escrow because of blah, 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 blah. They want to move out later. But you know, I don't see it north of 40 much in our residential resale business. And it, and it didn't, I thought I was going to see a bigger move in that. I thought we'd be like 50 days plus. It's going to take a longer time. Like all of this, like COVID was going to slow everything down and it, and it, I just didn't see the I data. Didn't see it. And, and it didn't, have it didn't move it way, significantly. Sometimes, sometimes the competitive offer says, hey, I can close in 15 days. I'll do all cash and I can close in 15 days. But that didn't yeah. happen significantly either. No, I still think it takes time to do a transaction. You still have to say like, am I getting what I, 
I just walked through it for 15 minutes and I had to make an offer by like two o'clock. Like you still have to inspect the house and make sure it's not a dog. You know what I mean? I think yeah. that there's some time that you have to go through in a transaction that you can't, again, it's that speed versus security. I would consider like getting what you think you're paying for as part of that security part, right. of, part of the equation. I don't know, like, yes, mechanically, you can make a deal happen in four days. Like we could close a real estate deal on all cash in four days. Like we could do that, yeah. right? Do you want to? Right. Should we? Yeah. Like, uh, if I'm buying my mom's house, right, that I've lived in and know everything that's wrong with it, and and it's not a complete stranger that I'm buying from it, like, yeah, I can see us like making it work. Awesome. That's really, really yeah. insightful. So that's actually useful for me because as we track, you know, the active market and the new listings and then the full active market, it's you know, the house is house gets listed today. It gets an offer in March. It, yeah. it then closes in April, and then you start seeing that data in May. Like that's why we totally we wanted. No, to that's why I love your data. Yeah, that's why that's why I love the Altos data is because it's like it's actually what's going on the market now. Yeah, you right. Know, because the one it takes time, the one time that that did compress was in coming out of the the bubble burst. We had yeah. the, we had a home buyer tax credit that expired. It was April first of twenty ten. Okay, so I was I was gonna say this is like nine ten. Okay, yeah, and and what happened was it pulled a lot of demand forward and it pulled a lot of closings forward because I got to yeah. get it in before April one. Uh, yeah, and and then we watched a compression of our lead time on the data happen at that point, but we yeah. really haven't seen it right now. That's great insight. We, I really appreciate that. We see that on an annual basis too. In December, there's a, like a lot of like a lot of incentive for a lot of folks to get deals closed before the end of the year. Yeah. Okay. So we see we see the big closing month in December often when you wouldn't say like, hey, why are these? And so December is always like a pretty and it's that race to the finish before the end of the year because of whatever potential tax changes or anything that maybe that may be coming, you know, forward. I know that was a big deal this year. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. And then and then, of course, as we go into a rising rate environment, we're doing fewer refi. You guys are mostly purchase focused. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Finally, we could get. Yes. yes. Oh, we can take a breather. Yeah. So, but as long as you're, as the business is focused on on buyers, like you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, anything yeah. else on that front that we should be paying attention to? Anything scary? In terms of the rate stuff. Yeah, rates and and I don't know. I don't know. Like, so one of the things I'm I'm interested in for, with when I talk to my guests here is you know, are there things on the horizon that are going to derail this train that I have, yeah. that we haven't seen things that you see or that you're, you're afraid of that are going to yeah. that we should be paying attention to. So again, this is so, so I, I feel like I've been terrified for like the past five years because the market's been so good. So that I'm like, just kind of like going like, no, but it's, there's something going on. Like what's, what it's going to, when, you know, when's the other, and I don't know if you just get desensitized to it. I think that market psychology is really interesting because when you think things are good, you think things are always going to be good. And when you think things are bad, you think things are always going to be bad. And I, you know, it's not actually, that's not actually what happens if you look at the data, right? But that's how people think and make decisions. I, so, so we're concerned. So if I'm looking at it from my business perspective, right? So it's like, if we look at our industry, like what we're most concerned about is market velocity. Right. So I care about how many transactions are happening in any given year, not what home prices or interest rates are. Mm -hmm. Like those are those are only indicators of what the number of transactions will be. Because like on a million dollar deal versus a five hundred thousand dollar deal, our fee's not dramatically different. It's not dramatically different. It's different, but it's not dramatically different. It's not like half, right? Because there's risk, there's just baseline risk with with transacting. And so you know, you scale, you scale up from there. And so I'm not concerned about home prices. I kind of want home prices. Am I going to say this out loud? I don't kind of want home prices to kind of soften a little bit because I think affordability is an issue and you want people to be in good financial scenario and not be house poor and all of these other things, which we talk to our employees about, you know what I mean? Like how do we financially plan really well? So I'm, I am interested in seeing how the fed handles inflation because that's something that we haven't really had to deal with in a long time in any kind of meaningful way. And that's more part of the dialogue and conversation right now. Interest rates have been really low for a really, 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 really long time. And so it'll be interesting to see how that 
impacts market velocity. It, it will obviously impact home prices, right? It has to, it has to. There is an inverse correlation, like you know, relationship between interest rates and home prices. Now, in little micro markets where there's just so much demand and people don't borrow money to buy houses, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. if you're in Corona Del Mar, it's not really gonna affect it, right? Like, or some really, really fancy places. But for the most part of the market, I think that that's, you're gonna see some softening there. Does that mean less houses will be sold? That's why it's like inventory is a problem, but if you have a, and that's just the net inventory that exists today. But if you have a bunch come on and a bunch come off and a bunch come on and a bunch come off, like I'm okay with that because the market velocity is still kind of going. It just means that homes are transacting at a, at a level. Where that slows down, that's where we need to take a good look and say like, okay, well, what is that causing? Do you know what I mean? Like what causes the actual market velocity to slow? Yeah. Right. And that typically is external factors from the real estate market itself. Right. That's it's COVID. like when I can't have COVID. Right. But that thing went, I mean, that went down. It was three weeks. And then boomed back. Yeah. Like Mike Del Preti called it like a check mark recovery. He was exactly right. I mean, it was like boom. And yeah. it came back with a vengeance. And by the way, we did not lay one person off during that time. We are so thankful because like we were like, I don't know how this is going to last. Could this last forever? You don't know, right? Yeah. Like that market psychology yeah. thing. And man, we are grateful we stuck it out. <laughs> yeah. Good for you. That's really great. That was really hard. We we held on to everybody, but it was scary for, for super like scary. Three weeks. <laughs> super scary. Super scary. Yeah. So that's really interesting. So so the external factors and, and those, of course, we can't predict, but there's some external factors happening right now in the world that that are yeah. frightening. So um yeah. so well, so Joe, this has been terrific. This is exactly what I was hoping to get out of it. Like really dive into the the geeky parts of the transaction and yeah. where the world is going and like you know what we need to pay attention to and so such really great insights so i really appreciate it to wrap up are there places that um like where should we where should listeners go find you interact with pango we you know we we talk to a lot of realtors a lot of southern california yeah. in this business so yeah. you know yeah yeah so where should we reach you so pangogroup.com is our website. It kind of gives you a, a pretty good overview of kind of what we do, what our brands are, what kind of companies that we're running. I'm active really on LinkedIn. That's kind of like my, my go-to kind of like uh, business interaction. I try to put out, I, I, I use a lot of your data to kind of make commentaries on the market because I, I've just found it to be really, really valuable. I mean, you and I have been in business um, for well over 10 years, I think. And it's been, a, it's been a great, I feel like, partnership. You've added a lot of value to our business. And, and I think that we try to give your data away as much as, you may not be hearing this, but we want to give it away as much as possible because I fundamentally believe that like a more informed customer, like with good data is a better customer. And so like, we just want to be like, so I give it out. Like, like if we want to interpret it, then, so then you were like, okay, let's, let's see how this impacts us in, in, in our business. But to find us, go to pangagroup.com. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn, you know, would love to engage. I'm a data geek like Mike. So we're like, let's, I'm always interested in hearing like really interesting, diverse opinions about kind of what they think is going on in the market. So I'm a big fan of Mike's and, and Mike, you've been a, you've been a great sounding board over the years in terms of like what's going on in the market and how to kind of dig, dig into this stuff. So I've been just really grateful and, and blessed to be part of the journey with you and, and I look forward to many more years. Joe, thank you so much for your time today and your insight on the transaction. It's a real, it's a real a specialty. And so, you know, like I said, I've, I've only bought three houses in my life. And so it's really, yeah. really useful for me to, <laughs> to pay attention here. Okay. Awesome. So uh, thank you, everyone. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for joining on the Top of Mind podcast. As a reminder, you can go to altosresearch.com to get a free consultation on how using market data in your business, how Joe uses his, the market data <laughs> yeah. in his business. Call me, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, that would be, that would be terrific. Uh, thanks. That's all we have time for today. More soon. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind. See you again next time and be sure to click subscribe to get future episodes.